Every time I came home, like my soul was at peace in the mountains. And so, yes, up here, I'm my best version of myself because of where I am and not necessarily because of what I do. Entrusted with the health and safety of scores of people at the age of 21, it's hard to imagine what the next step is on a linear path to success. Sarah McAllister Wolfley, Dartmouth 96, took a number of different steps from nonprofit to corporate to an unexpected career nearly where she started. Find out how the winding path just might bring you home on today's Roads Taken with me, Leslie Jennings Rowley. I'm here today with my friend Sarah McAllister Wolfley, and she has a great road story roads that take her back to the area of her home and why sometimes that geography has a really strong pull. So Sarah, I tend to start these conversations with when you were in college, um, who were you and who, when you were leaving, did you think you were? Well, in college, I definitely felt like a Colorado token to a certain extent. Um, I showed up at campus, you know, my family, um, had been in Colorado since like the 1880s and Utah, you know, Colorado, Western States. And if anyone left, it was to go to Wyoming. And I didn't really know what to expect from New England. Um, my, my sister went to the university of Boston, so I had visited the East coast, but I just, I just didn't you know, realize how different the worlds could be based on geography. And so I got there and I think there were eight kids from Colorado in our 96 class. And I just realized that had I applied from New Jersey or New York or Connecticut or Massachusetts, I probably would not have gotten in. Oh, who knows? That (laughs) that number game, like you feel like that, right? Yes. And so, but I appreciated the fact that as a college, Dartmouth wanted people from all over, all different backgrounds, you know, I went to a big public school um, just in the suburbs of Denver. And, um, yeah, I felt like I had a good background in my education. But I, when I got to campus, I realized there, you know, prep schools had done a totally different job educating some of the kids that were there. And I just kind of felt that maybe, you know, I was going to need to find my way just to feel like I should be there in the first place. So freshman year, you know, I played soccer, which helped a ton. Um, just bonding and getting to know other people. And then I remember like Shelly Arakara once said like, Sarah, no one thinks they should be here. Like that's, right. that's the deal. You're, you're in with the top 5%, the smartest people in the world and nobody feels like they should be here. Senior year, I spent a lot of time with alums because I was one of the four students that were in charge of the giving campaigns and calling alums for donations. And so I had spoken to a ton of alum junior and senior year and by senior year, I loved the friends I had made. The, the women I had met were amazing. Um, I, I was a little conflicted with, would I send my son there? I had some great friends freshman year. And then before we all rushed, it seemed to kind of just take the genders so separate and how and what they were doing and where they were going and who they were spending time with. And the, the whole Dartmouth male identity thing came into play for a lot of these guys and I don't know. I just, by senior year, when I was graduating, I was thinking that, I don't know, that this place is hard to be a male. I mean, it's hard to be a female, obviously, in that culture, too. But for some really nice, like, soft-hearted, sensitive guys that showed up, it could have been a really challenging place to be, too. So I just kind of, that was my um, my senior year wrap-up thought. 
<laughs> How were you thinking about the road right after college? Were you on a track of a job? What was that day after graduation for you? About um, February or March, I found out about this nonprofit opportunity. The day after graduation, my parents drove me down to Norfolk, Virginia, and I started with a group called Operation Smile, and they go you know, to developing countries and perform surgery on kids with mostly cleft lip and palate surgery. And so I began traveling internationally. I was in charge of the teams that were going to the different countries. I was in charge of getting everything from um, medical equipment to hotel stays to local doctors to work with. If a nurse wanted a Diet Coke in the middle of Romania, it was my job to get it for her. Like anything the medical team needed, that was you know my job. And so I got assigned to um, Ecuador, Colombia, the Philippines, Romania, and Kenya were my territory for two years. And it was intense. It was one of those jobs I kind of equate it to the Peace Corps, although um, people who go to the Peace Corps probably <laughs> would argue that point. But, you know, it was two years of intense dedication and commitment to one job 24-7. You know, you're expected to just live, breathe that job. And, it, and in return... You know, you got to travel to some amazing areas and experience those countries in a way that nobody else gets to. I mean, you're not there as a tourist. You know, you're not there um, to find yourself. You're there to help the most impoverished people of that area with some life-changing um, surgeries. I mean, these kids, they come from areas and villages. They could walk for days with their families just to come and be screened for surgery and be turned away. And then they would do it again the next year right. and the next year. And then finally, if they got the surgery and it's a quick, easy surgery, it doesn't require a ton of follow-up. So it's perfect for some of these remote areas, but it changes the lives of these kids in like the most impactful way because they, they can interface with people again, you know, that for the first time, a lot of them were thought of as being a curse to their family. If they were born with a cleft lip or palate the parents were sometimes blamed. Um, you know, you're just working with so many different cultural factors. And, you know, with an hour-long surgery, it can all be repaired. Yeah. And so that was, you know, intense. Within my first year, I was in charge of the biggest mission that was to the Philippines. And I think it was celebrating their 25th year as a nonprofit. So we had five surgical sites going, did over a thousand surgeries in five days, but we, we did lose a boy during surgery in one of those cases. And statistically, surgery is not always going to go the way you want it to. So, you know, that just the emotional toll that the job took after two years, that's kind of when I was like, okay, I'm, I'm getting back to Colorado. <laughs> I've loved this experience, but it's time to get a dog. It's time <laughs> to get a life. You know, I think Doing my fundraising at Dartmouth um, really led me to focus in on the nonprofit world. And I think the intensity of my first nonprofit experience, though, just kind of pushed me away from that track a little bit, mm -hmm. just because that nonprofit in particular consumed you. I had way too much responsibility for a 21, 22-year-old, but right. they couldn't get anyone else to do that job because at 30 or 35, you can't commit your entire life to it. You know, you're past that point. So... The mission coordinator job that I did was all 21, 22 year olds. And we were, you know, we were in Cali, Colombia with guerrilla warfare five miles away. And I was in charge of 
the lives of these nurses and doctors. And so I started just lying about my age because nobody <laughs> wants to hear that a 21 year old <laughs> is in charge of their personal safety. Okay. So I was 26 for about four years. Um, <laughs> that's, that's why you look ageless. It's perfect. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, that's the only time I'm going to lie about my age being older. <laughs> so your heart lies in nonprofit. You recognize there's a stress kind of that comes with that. Mm-hmm. What, what are you thinking at that point after the dog? <laughs> well, I actually got the dog halfway through the Operation Smile um, commitment because after the, the boy died in the Philippines, I just emotionally, to even continue the work, I had to take care of myself more. And I realized that whatever was good for the dog was good for me. So I had to get up and walk her. I had to take her to the beach. I had to get home before midnight to feed her. You know, so I really did some more mm. self-care in my second year because of that dog. <laughs> but um, after that experience, it was hard to find another job that I could. I mean, I went from controlling everything. Mm-hmm. And again, like personal safety, travel, equipment, getting the children there so that they could be selected for surgery. I mean, I was project coordinator on crack and um and then after that, it was just really hard to find a job that gave me any responsibility because a lot of people just saw, okay, psychology degree and a couple of years in a nonprofit. And I just, there wasn't a next step. There was no linear plan um, for what would come next. Most of the people in my job at Operation Smile went on to medical school and that was not what I wanted to do. I was in the nonprofit for the nonprofit's sake where a lot of these people in my job, they would spend their time in another country in the OR watching the surgeries Mm. um, and, you know, helping sometimes even hold a suture or because they knew they had finished their pre-med. This was their two years in between undergraduate and medical school and they knew what was next. Mm. Um, But that is not why I wanted to do that job. So that was a challenging time. I came back to Colorado. I lived in Boulder. I ended up at a touring company that took people to areas of the world to see natural habitat. I started as a receptionist so that I could learn about the trips and then try to sell them later down the road. But it was it was kind of um, a crushing blow to then to go from what I had been doing to answering phones. It just it, it I didn't I didn't get anything from it. And so I, I did get to go on a couple trips. I got to see some polar bears migrate in mm-hmm. Canada and that kind of continued my travel bug. But I didn't, I didn't see a direct path to another nonprofit. Um, so I ended up going to business school. Got my MBA. And again, like no straight path. Did I really want to go to the corporate world? Um, when I looked at nonprofits in the area, a lot of them were just fundraising. And I had done the fundraising portion in mm-hmm. college. But really, you know, the, the part that I loved about my nonprofit experience was the hands-on, like... Operational. Yeah, the, the, the seeing the impact on a daily basis. So I think that's when I pivoted from the nonprofit and I thought I was just going to go corporate and focus more on the international. That's what I took away from the operation smile. Wasn't the nonprofit bug as much as it was the international bug, because I just couldn't find another nonprofit that had the international aspect that, you know, doctors without borders, like all of those things were much more, um, you know, that would require a lot of moves like New York city was a lot of a big base for a lot of them. LA, San Francisco, and I, I just didn't want to leave Colorado. So again, I got my MBA, focused on international business and information systems, and figured, 
computer programming international, you know, take on that. It's got to get me abroad. I, I'm, I'll be working internationally in no time. <laughs> but I uh, ended up joining IBM thinking because they have such a strong presence globally that I could move throughout their offices. But it was, you know, by that time it was early 2000s and you know, they had just gone through Y2K and they had realized that they didn't really want expats working mm. for their branches abroad. They, you know, that was not um, a very popular way to do business anymore. So they were really more interested in cultivating their local talent. I just kind of, I had some teams based in France that I was part of. And so, you know, I'd get up and do 5 a.m. conference calls with them. And it was project management and kind of got back to my project management that I had done at Operation Smile. And I thought, okay, yeah, this is a corporate route. I can do this. And I some kind of started talking to my manager about going the international route. And he was like, yeah, maybe in 10 or 12 years, oh. <laughs> you, can, you can get transferred right. abroad. And I was like, oh, that's just not what I was hoping to hear. I think at that point, I just really started to focus. You know, I was in my mid to late 20s. Corporate world wasn't providing, obviously not the same sort of fulfillment that Operation Smile had, but it's still it just on a personal level, even without touching children's lives on a daily basis, I figured the job had to be a little more inspiring than this corporate world I found myself in. And, you know, like I said, my family had been in Colorado for you know, over a hundred years and they were mostly ranchers and small businessmen. There weren't any real corporate attorneys or um, Wall Street guys or any, anybody that, you know, had set an example. So I just thought, okay, I'm going to take my MBA and I'm going to think of other things I can do. And, and at the time, IBM went through some major layoffs. And so I went to my manager and I said, you could lay me off. I am fine taking <laughs> the severance package. You know, it was like three months of pay and health care. So for three months, I was like, that's good. I'm in. I'll do it. And he was like, no, 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 no. We'll find you another spot. We can easily place you within the, you know, the IBM Boulder campus. I said, no, nope, no, nope, not for me. Um, so that left me with what, you know, again, no direct path. <laughs> No straight line of, you know, here's this psychology degree. I didn't go get a master's in psychology. I got a master's in business. You know, I didn't do medical school after Operation Smile like most people did. And uh, now I have an MBA and I started IBM, but didn't like it. Like I just kind of kept wavering. And so I, I tried to focus on, I don't have a career in mind anymore. You know, growing up, I thought I was going to be a pediatrician. Like that was just... That was just what I was going to do my whole life. And after one chemistry class, my freshman fall, I realized that was not what I was going to do. <laughs> and so even and even during Operation Smile, going in and seeing kids under the knife, just I couldn't I couldn't do it. I couldn't see, you know, I wasn't interesting to me from a medical perspective. All I could think about was the human that that was, you know, cutting into and it just wasn't my thing. So that solidified it that, yeah, no, I don't know. I do not need to go get like a post-bac pre-med and go on to medical school. Like that wasn't my MBA, IBM, and then jobless. <laughs> so I found myself in, in my late 20s with an Ivy League education, an MBA, with a slant on computer programming and international business with nowhere to go. And I started focusing more on what can I do in Denver? And what do I want to do to be in Colorado? And then I just realized I didn't really want to be in Denver either. I, I didn't want the city. I, I had grown up in a small mountain town. And um, that was really what I was looking for. Because 
while I was away at school in Operation Smile, I mean, Denver had boomed. It was mm -hmm. a huge mm -hmm. city now. And the population, you know, it's a great city. It's so much more fun. And there's so much more to do than when I was growing up. But, like, if you want to go skiing, you're sitting in traffic for three hours. You know, it's not. So I had come up to the Aspen Valley on another, like, side trip and just realized that, oh, my, like, that was just the epiphany. Like, this is where I want to be. Mm -hmm. Lifestyle-wise. Job-wise, not a lot of options. <laughs> and you're working remotely in 2003 wasn't a very um, widespread thing. Right. And so even if I had stayed at IBM, I couldn't have really jettisoned that to a remote location like the Aspen Valley. And so the one job you could do up here is real estate. And so I moved to the Valley where I knew no one and had never done real estate before and just went for it, which is not the best way to get into real estate. Usually you like to go where you have connections, people who are going to call you because they grew up with you or, you know, they, you know, they just, they've known you forever and now you're their realtor. Um, but no, that's, that's for places where locals are buying the real estate. Aspen, maybe not so much, right? Well, yeah. I mean, the Aspen Valley um, you know, c covers Aspen and Snowmass for the second homeowner, third homeowner, fourth home, fifth home. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then Basalt and some other towns nearby are more year-round residences. So it does. It has a nice mix. But yeah, it's. I didn't realize until a couple years in that it's Aspen itself is the second most competitive real estate industry behind Manhattan, um, just based on the number of realtors and the number of transactions that take place. So um, luckily I, you, I didn't know that I going in. Say, yeah. Good thing you knew that two years <laughs> in, not at the beginning. Yeah. yeah, I probably would just have turned around and driven back to Denver and found another desk job. But so 17 years later and, you know, gone through the recession and deals everywhere from the first time home buyer to the, you know, Wall Street, Connecticut purchaser wanting the summer home for millions of dollars. As you know, so again, it's, you know, I find myself similar to that question I was asking myself my senior year of, wow, this is great. Now, instead of thinking about like, how hard was it to navigate the fraternity sorority system? Now it's like, well, I, I love it here. And then I'm, I'm also interacting with this amazing people. And then there's the whole 1% movement. And I'm like, wow, but some of my closest friends are now one percenters because I've known them so long. I've done transactions and they're great people. I'm like, that is, that is tough. That's a tough um, balance to, mm -hmm. to know that the, you know, you're so close to some of the world's wealthiest people. And it's just a hard pill to swallow. Sometimes when you think about half our Valley, our first generation immigrants, you know, too, with you know, our schools have the highest, some of the highest populations of need-based food and lunches and things like an inner city school too. And, and we're 18 miles from one of the wealthiest cities in the world. And so again, just some of those um, emotions come up when you're thinking too much about things. Right. I mean, and we're, we're seeing inequities in every community, it seems mm -hmm. these days, but you know, what drew you there was that spirit and that way of life and just a a different way of being. And so how have you filled not just the work part of your being, but the other yes. part of your being by being there? Yeah, no, I'm, and it is an amazing part of the state. You know, we still have some of the ranchers from the 1880s in place, working their ranches, the original homesteaders. We have amazing skiing, 20 minutes from my door. My family and I ski every weekend. We don't have to fight any traffic. You know, we are so spoiled that if it's too cold, we just drive home. You know, it's just, oh. yeah. And just the tranquility, you know, it's, um, there's no rush hour, there's no traffic. 
the it's a small town without the small town mentality um, because Aspen does bring so much culture. The original founders of Aspen weren't even in the ski industry. They were, um, you know, magnets for bringing people together to discuss world issues, the Pepkis. And so there's the Aspen Institute, there's the music festival, there's, you know, just so much that trickles down throughout the valley. It's amazing. And, you know, most people are transplants here, but, you know, once you're here, you stay. Um, it's a hard place to leave because it's just, it's hard to compare. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's a challenge because, you know, there is the, the cost of living and the lack of jobs, security. And so, you know, in like a recession of 09, people just move away because nobody has to be in this valley. There's not a single, like necessarily a job that brings you here. Most people come here for the lifestyle. And then, you know, if it just doesn't work out, they'll move. But yeah, it's, it's amazing. So hiking, biking, the fishing, we have rivers everywhere. We have mountains. It's just I mean, I'm looking out my window now and I'm, I have 360 degrees of, of mountainside around me. It's amazing. So it feels like you have landed in a place that really does feed your soul. And you you needed that more than a job, a career, uh, an everyday work that was going to do yeah. that for you. It's really the Absolutely. environment. Absolutely. Like my family was not religious. Um, growing up, we spent our weekends outside. And so to me, and, and it was always outside in the mountains. So even when I was in Virginia, in Virginia Beach, on the ocean, you know, I, the ocean was great. I loved it. But every time I came home, like my soul was at peace in the mountains. And so, yes, up here, I'm my best version of myself because of where I am and not necessarily because of what I do. But I love, I do love real estate. I'll give you that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And and I, from all accounts, you're excellent at it. Oh. It's a, uh, it is, it, it's a great, it is a great job. It's a great career. It gives you flexibility. You know, I can coach soccer. I can be at every school event, I, you know, being your own boss, going back to those, you know, hundred years of ranchers and small businessmen, you know, this, I am, I am my own boss, which is amazing, but no one grows up like, oh, I can't wait to graduate and be a realtor. <laughs> So again, it wasn't necessarily a direct path, but. But okay, so that's my next question. So have you gathered all of this wisdom and somehow fast forwarded and you got it the day you graduated and you heard the siren call toward the mountains? Do you think your life would be what it is right now? Or did you need to go and feel like, oh my gosh, I'm not on a linear path. Oh my gosh, this other thing isn't exactly it. Oh my gosh, international yeah, I honestly think if I had heard the call to the mountains on graduation day, I would have found something on the East Coast. Like, I feel like I would have maybe gone to Vermont or not, you know, not ventured all the way back to Colorado. I would not, I didn't even know this valley existed, really. I mean, mm. like, I grew up in Colorado and never came to this valley because it's it's three hours from Denver and there's a hundred places to ski in between and I found out later that one of my grandma's sisters was a potato farmer up here. And my grandma used to come fly fishing with her dad. And, you know, there's a, there's so much rich history up here. Um, but, you know, I didn't know it growing up. So it wasn't a place I grew up thinking, this is where I want to end up. This is for me. So looking back at that 22-year-old, what, what advice would you try to give her to make things, you know, easier along the way? Just to give yourself a break more. You know, I think... Um, to even just to get into Dartmouth, you're obviously fairly hard on oneself. Um, and 
like I said, and then getting there and questioning, you know, should I really be here? Do I really belong academically? Um, you know, was I given a break because I'm from Colorado? You know, you know, so I should have just like not dwelled on that for as long as I did. Like, who cares? Give yourself a break. If that's what it took, that's what it took. You're still here. You know, enjoy it more. I went through a few years of little Ivy League guilt. Like, I got this really expensive degree and what am I doing with it? I'm selling real estate. You don't even have to have like a high school diploma to sell real estate. <laughs> I have had that conversation with a lot of stay-at-home mom friends too that have the Ivy League education. Like, what am I doing with it? What did I, you know... Did I take someone else's place that could be solving world peace had they had my education? Um, but no, I think, like I said, I would just tell that 22-year-old, like, you're going to um, be questioned a lot and you just got to stand up for yourself because I was the first female to have my job at Operation Smile as a mission coordinator. Up to that point, it had been all men oh. because, again, you're going into these third world countries and they they view gender roles very differently. Mm -hmm. So it had never been given to a woman just assuming that a woman could not get the job done. So in my first week there, I was told like, we took a big risk on you. If you fail, there will never, never be again. another woman. Yeah. <laughs> it all yeah. rides on you, Sarah. Yeah. Again, I was 21. Like that's a lot to take on. And so I would just want that 21, 22 year old to just be a little more tender with herself. Yeah. Well, I so appreciate your talking and kind of telling yeah, me thanks. that, you know, your your meandering path has gotten you back home in a sense and that you're really yeah. enjoying your life there. I am. Thanks so much, Sarah. Thank you. That was Sarah McAllister Wolfley, who's been a realtor in Aspen and its surrounding mountain communities for over 17 years. With accolades to her name and a rich knowledge of her beloved Colorado, she's the natural choice for anyone interested in the housing market there. And for anyone interested in hearing more stories of winding up just where you're supposed to be, follow me, Leslie Jennings Rowley, on the next Roads Taken.